concerns across northern Australia as tropical cyclone Trevor intensifies and tracks towards the north coast. Sustained winds of 100 miles per hour, even more, will cause disruption and damage to this part of the world. As the gales finally ease here in the UK, we hear how wind energy is going from strength to strength. Typically, when the winds start to get above 50 miles an hour, that's when they start to have problems, and that's when they do start to need to switch off in order to protect themselves from the strength of the wind. And we mark World Meteorological Day on Saturday. Weather knows no boundaries, and if we don't know what's going on in other countries around the world, then we can't run our weather models, and we don't know what's going to come up and hit us tomorrow or next week. Hello, I'm Claire Nazir, and you're listening to WeatherSnap, an insider's guide to the week's weather brought to you direct from Met Office HQ. Tropical cyclone Trevor made landfall across the Cape York Peninsula in Australia on Tuesday as a Category 2 cyclone. However, it's currently pushing westwards into open waters yet again and is likely to intensify. Here's meteorologist Alex Burkhill. Flood warnings remain in force across the Cape York Peninsula in North Queensland after severe tropical cyclone Trevor made landfall earlier this week. It brought high waves, damaging winds and heavy rain up to 300 millimetres in places. However, this cyclone is now tracking into open waters again. And so it is going to reinvigorate and strengthening to a Category 3 or even Cat 4 before it makes landfall across the far north of the Northern Territory state into the weekend. A thousand millimetres of rain is possible, which is around a month's worth of rain for this region. And sustained winds of 100 miles per hour or even more will cause disruption and damage to this part of the world. The Bureau of Meteorology in Australia has more details on this and also tropical cyclone Veronica, which is expected to make landfall in the northwest of the country. Thank you, Alex. And in other global weather news today, the first devastating reports are coming out of Mozambique, where cyclone Ide made landfall last Friday. Life-threatening storm surge and torrential rain overwhelmed the city of Bira, where half a million people live. An estimated 1,000 millimetres of rain fell in a short time. Tropical cyclone then tracked inland towards Zimbabwe, where 400 millimetres of rain produced mudslides and flooding. Imagery from Zimbabwe portrays a stark impression of what proceeded in neighbouring Mozambique. After seven years of being in drought conditions, the state of California has now declared a non-drought state. However, in Nebraska, too much heavy rain has resulted in extensive flooding as a very deep area of low pressure pushed across this state, bringing with it damaging winds and intense rain. Last week, the government pledged an expansion of offshore wind power, with a target of 30% of electricity to come from offshore wind farms by 2030. That's a relatively short lead time of only 11 years. If this happened, it would mean that approximately 70% of Britain's energy would be sourced from renewables. As a country, we host two of the largest offshore wind farms in the world, one off the coast of Cumbria, the other off the coast of Yorkshire. Earlier, I spoke to Patrick Seychon, industry and transport lead here at the Met Office. We have a lot of wind in the UK and we have a lot of wind energy potential, so that's why we've seen the proliferation of wind energy assets on land and on sea. So, yeah, there's a huge potential um, as part of a mix of 
less carbon intensive ways of producing energy. The difficulty though is understanding how the wind's going to blow and which direction and how strong it's going to be at any moment in time. So what's the best place to place a, a wind farm? Actually, what you need if you're putting together a wind energy portfolio across the UK is lots of different places because you want to have energy from assets coming into the network all the time and the wind isn't blowing the same direction or the same amount in any place. So you want to have it as diverse as possible. But there's obviously places where there's more wind energy than others, you know, exposed parts of the UK. We see, you know, wind turbines on exposed hills and obviously offshore as well is another part of the country where there's a lot of available wind energy. But is there a point where it is too windy? Yes, there are cut-offs. It does depend on what type of wind energy equipment is being used at a particular place, what type of turbines. But typically, when the winds start to get above 50 miles an hour, that's when they start to have problems, and that's when they do start to need to switch off in order to protect themselves from uh, the strength of the wind. So the Met Office is instrumental when it comes to wind energy and advises energy companies. We do two things, really, if you boil things down, in the energy sector when it comes to wind. We help people that own turbines or arrays of turbines understand how much energy they're going to generate from those turbines. And that's very important because they agree a price around generating a certain amount of energy and they do that hour by hour and they need to predict that to the networks. The second thing we do is helping those networks understand how much energy they're going to get from their wind energy assets. So that's a forecast for one day, two days, one week, even beyond that? Yes, a lot of the focus is on the relatively short range but also people want to understand, you know, on a, on a longer-term basis. So you have wind turbine companies which capture the wind, basically, but then obviously there's the national grid as well. Yeah, so that's where there's a big challenge because we need to have the lights on all the time. Uh, so energy security is absolutely critical, but you also want to try and harness as much of this available you know, low-carbon energy that you can from wind and from solar. So what National Grid has to do is try and balance the demand that we have for energy, which goes up and down, and that's actually dependent on the weather, with the amount of energy that's available from wind turbines and so on. The Met Office must be uniquely placed, though, to advise the sector in general when it comes to wind energy. Yes, we are, because we do know a lot about how the weather works. Every day, every hour, we're forecasting how the weather's going to develop. So what we do is we take the information from the underpinning weather forecast models and we tailor that information more and more towards the specific wind turbine on a specific hill somewhere in the UK. So what we do is we take the general forecast of what the wind's doing and when we do what we call post-processing to take that information and make it as relevant as it can be to a wind turbine either offshore or on a location in the UK. And what we'll be doing to do that is taking account of how high up or low down that wind turbine is in terms of altitude, and then what the surrounding topography and land use is like and how that's going to affect the way that the wind blows at that turbine. Only last week, the wind energy sector was reporting a bumper spell of generation after an incredibly windy few weeks in weather. And it also seems there is a wind change when it comes to public opinion on wind farms. A new survey of people living in the US within eight kilometres of wind turbines finds that 90% prefer this to a centralised power plant the same distance away. As we approach World Meteorological Day on Saturday, I caught up with Jane Wardle, International Relations Manager for the World Met Organisation, or WMO, and asked her about the importance of the WMO and the Met Office role within it. We celebrate it on the 23rd because way back in 1950, that was the day that the convention was signed which established the World Meteorological Organisation. 
It's a UN agency. It, it's based in Geneva, and it has 192 members, which are countries all around the world that all take part in it. And what's the role of the WMO? It has an essential role in bringing together countries and helping us to form these massive intergovernmental agreements on how we're going to share our weather observations data. So sharing is key. Absolutely. And that's where the Met Office sits within the organisation. It does. It's one of the most essential roles. So as you know, weather knows no boundaries. And if we don't know what's going on in other countries around the world, then we can't run our weather models and we don't know what's going to come up and hit us tomorrow or next week. So the Met Office shares the data, but in return we do actually see other computer models generated by other countries. And together there are obviously some countries who don't have their own Met organisations. That's right. It's known as sometimes as the jewel in the crown of the UN agencies. We have a real community of sharing information and there are always issues around that. Around, so we have to make sure, of course, we're in line with the UK policy around sharing our data. Um, but we have a pretty open data policy. And then, yes, we run our models, we understand what's happening weather around the world, and then we can not only use that to benefit the UK public and let us know, do we need to like, put up flood defences or can we hang our washing out? But actually, we share it with countries all around the world who maybe don't have such the capabilities that we're so lucky to have here in the UK. So what's happening on Saturday, World Met Day? Yep, so on Saturday there'll be a lot of celebrations going on in Geneva, but there'll also be a lot of celebrations going on around the world, so lots of countries will be having big events to celebrate it. There'll be more information on the website, so wmo.int will have lots of information around what's happening and when. Jane Wardle, thank you very much. Flooding and wind damage over the past few weeks has been because of a potent jet stream. However, things have now shifted. Here's meteorologist Sarah Kent. So for the first half of March, the jet stream has spawned really wet and windy weather and brought it to the shores of Britain. Now this band of strong upper winds has now moved northwards. Although still clipping northwest Scotland, its influence is now more focused over Iceland. And this has meant for the UK that our weather has been quieter. The Azores high-pressure zone has extended towards us and this brings a prospect of some calmer conditions, albeit rather cloudy at times. The air is also warmer, so if you catch any sunshine, then it's going to feel really pleasant with just light winds. But the exception is northern and the far northwest of Scotland, where strong winds and rain will continue to affect these parts on Thursday. Friday sees a change, as a cold front affects Scotland, and it'll be this cold front that tracks southwards, introducing colder air and blustery showers for mainly the north of the UK this weekend. However, high pressure will reassert itself next week, so expect it to become much more settled once again. Before that, though, the combination of a full moon and strong northerly winds, so very high tides at the weekend, and expect some high waves to affect the east coast. Thanks, Sarah. And now here's Martin Bowles with last week's highs and lows. Here are your extremes for the week beginning Monday the 11th of March. The warmest place was St James's Park in London on Thursday the 14th of March with a high of 16.1 Celsius. The coldest night into Monday morning was in Dromna Drocket in the Scottish Highlands which had a low of minus 1.5 Celsius. However, Monday was also the sunniest day, with East Malling in Kent receiving 10.8 hours of sunshine. The highest rainfall that fell in one day was on Saturday the 16th of March at Capel Curig in Carnarvonshire in Wales, 
which had a whopping 137.6 millimetres. Martin, many thanks. That's it from Weathersnap. I'm Claire Nazir, and producer was Adrian Holloway. Join us again next week when we'll take a scientific peek behind the week's weather headlines. Weathersnap is a podcast by the UK Met Office.